0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the study of antiquity and the Middle Ages. As always, I am your host, Nick Barksdale, and today we are joined by a very special guest who's going to do an awesome episode with us on none other than the Seleucid Cavalry. Dr. Sylvanan Gerard, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And so to start off, would you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. So I have a PhD in classics and ancient history from the University of Manchester and I'm a Hellenistic historian. So that means I'm interested in the period after Alexander the Great's death but before the rise of Rome and its eastern conquests. And in particular I'm interested in the military developments of this period. So my research is on the Seleucid cavalry and its unconventional troops. So By that, I mean it's war elephants, it's scythe chariots, it's camels. And I'm interested in seeing how these develop over this period and how they're integrated within the theoretical conceptions of the army and its actual tactical conception as a whole.
0: And to start off, for those who may not be familiar with the subject, but they want a basic understanding, would you mind telling us what was the Seleucid Empire and what did it come out of?
1: The Seleucid Empire is one of the major kingdoms of the Hellenistic period, and this starts from the chaos of Alexander the Great's death. So as we know, Alexander the Great, during his lifetime, conquered the Achaemenid Persian Empire, so broadly the area that is the Middle East, right the way through into India. And when he dies in either 323, 322 BC, there's no clear successor. His son hasn't been born yet, it's not clear who he wants to be in charge, if anybody, so all his generals decide they're going to claim power for themselves and that creates like a 70 year period of absolute chaos. And this is known as the Wars of the Diadochi or the Wars of the Successors. Now I'm not gonna go too much into detail about those wars because they are very, very complicated and there's lots of people who are involved. But with the Seleucids, Seleucus was one of Alexander's generals and he was appointed the governor of Babylon. And this is taken away from him by Antigonus Monophthalmos, or Antigonus the One-Eyed, who's like the one general of Alexander's who really wants to keep hold of the entire empire for himself. And Seleucus retakes Babylon in 312 BC, and then he goes campaigning in the east and sort of solidifying the area under his control. And this... All the chaos of this period sort of culminates in the Battle of Ipsus in 301 BC, where Antigonus Monothalmos is killed. And after that, things slowly start to settle down. It takes a bit longer, but things start to settle down a little bit. And from that, we get the major dynasties and the major kingdoms emerging. So you get the Ptolemies in Egypt, you get the Antigonids in Macedon and Greece, and you get like the Seleucids. And At its height, the Seleucid Empire spans from Asia Minor, so this is sort of like modern day Turkey, Syria, right the way through the Middle East to the borders of ancient India. So modern day, we're talking Afghanistan or Pakistan. And that's at its height. Obviously those borders change quite a lot during this period, but that gives you a rough idea of where we mean. It's broadly the same area that the Achaemenid Persians we're in. And that's important because the Seleucid Empire isn't just a greco macedonian Empire. It also is heirs to the Achaemenid Persian tradition. And that's very important when we think about who's in the cavalry, what type of cavalry do they have, and so on.
0: When it comes to the Seleucid Empire, this episode is going to dive in to its cavalry. And so we're going to go straight in And when it comes to the cavalry of the Seleucid Empire, when you think about them, what do you personally see?
1: Right, so this is an answer that has, or a question that has many different answers, or different layers to the answer, because it very much depends on which contingents we're talking about. But before we get into any details, it is worth mentioning that trying to understand what comprises the Seleucid cavalry is rather complicated, because... Our sources are not that great for the Seleucid army anyway. We only have three detailed lists of who is in the Seleucid army. So we've got Polybius' account for the Battle of Raphia in 217 BC. We've got Livy and Appian's um, accounts of the Battle of Magnesia in 190 BC. And then we've got the very fragmentary episode in Polybius of the procession at Daphne in 165 BC. So we're limited to I think it's about a 52 year window where we actually have a glimpse at who is in the Seleucid army. And we have to then be careful that when we generalize out that we can't expect it to have stayed the same for hundreds of years. So the Seleucid Empire spans from 312 right the way down to 64 or 62 BC. So we only know about a tiny little window. Further complications come that the Daphne procession isn't a military battle. So there's a lot in that procession that's to do with grandeur and prestige and showing off and looking really flashy. And we might want to question how far that actually represents military reality. The other complication is that uh, Raffia Polybius gives us lots of wonderful in- in- evidence about who is in the infantry. But then he just says, oh, and 6,000 cavalry. Tone Hippion, the cavalry, and doesn't tell us anything else. And it's like, well, that's incredibly frustrating. And that tendency to just call them the cavalry is rather common. And that means trying to work out who's in the cavalry gets rather complicated. It doesn't mean that they're all the same, because that isn't the case. But it does mean that it's not as clear as we would like. That said, we do know of some actual units. So we know of the companions and the Agama, so these are the Royal Seleucid Cavalry Guard, and these are units that have evolved from Alexander the Great's army. They're not quite the same in Alexander the Great's army, the Agama is a subunit of the companions, and in the Seleucid army they are separate, but they form the guard, and they're about a thousand strong each, so a two thousand strong cavalry guard. After that we know of different units like the Cataphracts, one after Antiochus's campaigns in Parthia. So this is like the late 200s BC. We also know of different sort of localized um, units like the Dahai, the Tarentines, and the Galatians. So we know a little bit, but there's still a lot that we're open to speculation about.
0: Many of our subscribers had asked if we know anything about their ethnic makeup. Could you verify any information on that?
1: Yeah, so I thought this question had come up. It, it's a very interesting question, but again, a quite a complicated question because questions of ethnicity are rarely simple. And it's important to remember that the Seleucid Empire is a vast area. It encompasses many different peoples, many different cultures. I mean, if you were to draw a big ring round all of the Middle East today, they're not all the same people. They're all from different cultures, different types of people. So trying to work out the ethnicity of any particular cavalry unit becomes a little more complicated. Now, when we deal with the guard, it is the guard that we know the most about, because they're the most prestigious, so we know the most about them. Some scholars have suggested that there is an ethnic divide between the two units of the guard, that they say that the companions are typically Greco macedonian or descendants of Greco macedonians and that the Agema is made up of Eastern cavalrymen. And there is some justification for that because Livy tells us at the Battle of Magnesia that the royal squadron, so the companions, is made up of Phrygians, Lydians and Syrians. Now we know that in Phrygia and Lydia, so this is sort of modern day Turkey, that a lot of military settlements of originally Macedonian settlers were in that area. So that fits with the idea that the companions are Macedonians. And we know that Livy likes to use the term Syrian as a catch-all to mean Seleucid. So again, that sort of fits that idea. And then later Livy says that the Agama is made up of Medes. So this is people from the satrapy of Media in southwestern Iran and other people from that area. So again, that gives us this idea that we have this split between the two different units. However, it's not quite that simple because Appian who also gives us an account of Magnesia and is drawing on Polybius, so that's the same source Livy got his information from, says the Agama is just Macedonian and that is problematic. So it's like what does he mean by Macedonian? Is Macedonian as simple as it means people from Macedonian heritage or has it evolved in its use? And we again hear later, Diodorus says the Thessalians in Larissa, Alarontes in Syria. So these are people descended from Thessaly in Greece who now live in Syria. Made the first, made up the first agama of the cavalry. And th- he says this in relation to events in one hundred and forty-two BC. So some have said, well, that's fine. Parth- the Parthians have invaded Media at this point, so we need to get the Agama from elsewhere. So that makes sense. I'm like, maybe, maybe that's true. At the same time, it's quite interesting that he says the first Agama of the cavalry. So Agama in Greek literally just means the leading unit, the best unit. If if he means the Agama of the guard, why would he call it the first Agama? So there's a question, does he mean the Agama at all? What is going on there? So we might see a split between the two I'm okay to say yes there's possibly a split but I think it's clear we need to be a little fluid with our things it doesn't fit nicely into two little categories once we move out of the guard things get a little more confusing so it's less clear some of the localized contingents so the contingents you only call up when you go to war your allies your mercenaries the subjects from this particular area they're a little bit easier because they are pretty much only called by their ethnic label. So we hear of the Dahai have come and they're serving in the army, or we hear of the Galatians have come. And it's a bit easier to say, these are people from that region. Now you might say, well, you just said you need to be careful with this. And yes, we do need to be careful with labels. They can change, but because of the very nature that you have called these people up from that particular region, it's a bit more likely that those labels are accurate in, as opposed to, say, the more standardised, prestigious contingents where it's a little more confusing as to what they're being called. So, like, for example, you call them the Cappadocians because the Cappadocian king sent them to you. So they are Cappadocians in that sense, where, like, the companions are companions and it's not clear whether they're Macedonian whether Macedonian has some sort of... Prestigious status that doesn't mean someone just from Macedon. Of course, we do have to be careful, things can change into pseudo ethnic titles, and we do see that with the Tarentine cavalry. So, originally, these start as uh, mercenaries from Tarentum in Italy, and they very quickly spread across the Hellenistic world. So, they're a very interesting unit, they're not just in the Seleucid army, they're in lots of other Hellenistic armies. And they have a very distinctive fighting style. So scholars have suggested that the name Tarentine eventually evolves to mean only that fighting style. It doesn't mean people from Tarentum. So we do have to be careful with this question of ethnicity. I think it's safe to say there's lots of different ethnicities in the Seleucid cavalry. You have to remember that both the Macedonians and the Achaemenid Persians had very strong cavalry traditions. Both places were very good at cavalry, so it seems quite likely that there was lots of different people in the Seleucid army.
0: When it comes to the typical cavalry of the Seleucid Empire, would you say that uh, they would rely on mercenaries just as much as citizen soldiers, or did it really just kind of depend?
1: This is, again, a very interesting question. The first thing we need to... I think, clear is that there is no such thing really as a Seleucid citizen in the Seleucid Empire. You're all subjects of the king, that's fine. You can be a citizen, but you're a citizen only of a particular city, and that comes with different political rights, different rights to do, like, own property, and in that city. And we know this because... Um, there is a very important inscription from Magnesia, where the neighbouring city Smyrna is granting the people in Magnesia citizenship of that city. The king approves it, but you are citizens of the city of Smyrna, not a Seleucid citizen in any broad kind of sense. So that's the first thing we have to be aware of. Then as to how then the military works, we then have to take a step back and go, right, what types of troops do we have? So as I said, we have the guard and any k- king, any emperor is going to have their own personal guard who are always on duty. Their job is to serve the king, protect his interests. So we have the guard, the cavalry are the companions in the Agama and in the infantry, it's the Argaraspides. And these would have been stationed at the war office in Apamea, as Strabo tells us. Apamea is in modern day Syria. So we know those, they're always going to be on duty. After that, it gets a little more complicated. On the whole, most people would agree that the Seleucids have a military settlement system like the Ptolemies. And this is where soldiers have been given land in thanks for service and it comes with the obligation that they and their descendants will serve in the army. They have military obligations. Now, some scholars have said that there isn't this system I would say if you actually look carefully at the evidence, it is there. So this is a different type of soldier. They're not necessarily on duty all the time, but they do have obligations to serve. So they're going to form, like, your regular people. You know you can count on these people. After that, of course, you're going to have the people you only call up when you go to war. that don't have obligations to fight for you. Otherwise, so these are going to be... the random subjects that get called up your allies and your mercenaries so yes there are mercenaries trying to work out who is a subject who is an ally who is a mercenary gets very complicated very quickly because it's not clear whether are you subjects or allies are you allies or are we paying you and does that make you mercenaries so it gets a little complicated but they would have had mercenaries in the army
0: and that's a great point because i didn't actually realize that and i know many of my subscribers had used the term seleucid citizen And so that is a really great point that I know many of us are going to appreciate. So thank you for expanding on that. And so another subscriber had asked, when it comes to service in the Seleucid military, do we know anything about whether most of it was voluntary or whether they relied heavily on conscription?
1: Again, this is part and parcel of what we said before, about it It depends who you are and what your military status is. So... If you are a settler, you have an obligation to serve, and when the king goes to war, it's understandable that he will expect you to show up. so it's not conscription in a sense that we understand it, it's more a pre-existing obligation you've you or your ancestors have agreed you will fight for the king. As for say the people you just call up general um mobilization, it's a little less clear we don't really know. It's not going to be anything formal like conscription as we understand it. It might be you tell your local satrap, I need 10,000 men, how he gets those 10,000 men's up to him as long as he turns up with 10,000 men. And there's going to be some voluntary element that it may have been at some stages that, particularly for these cavalry that are not your major cavalry, that just owning a horse is good enough to make you eligible. So again, it depends on who you are and what type of obligations you have to the king
0: when it comes to the seleucid military in general yeah. what uh do we know kind of the size of the army at a normal time
1: I get, this is the sort of question that it depends on the battle that we're talking about so roughly I would say that the seleucid's battlefield potential which is not the same as its total military potential because you're never going to put all your troops on the battlefield' because If you lose, that's going to be like suicide. So we're talking around 60 to about 80,000. That's not to say they can't have more. So in Antiochus's Eastern campaigns, so we're talking about 212 BC to about 206 BC, Justin tells us he's got over 100,000 men. Now, those numbers are huge. And a lot of people said, whoa, calm down. Maybe it's not quite that big. But there are reasons to think it may have been quite large that it would have been larger than a normal army because this is a huge campaign he's undertaking. And the solicit certainly could mobilize that many people. But on the battlefield itself it tends to be between sixty and eighty thousand.
0: I can't even I can't even imagine. I mean, like if you read battles in the medieval period from what we're talking about when it comes to the Seleucids, just their army alone would dwarf most of the countries in Europe when it comes to their standing armies all at once during the medieval time period. And so the fact that we're looking at the ancient world and just the sheer size of those numbers, I mean, that's absolutely, I mean, crazy.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things in the Hellenistic period is just how large the armies are. I mean, obviously the Seleucid Empire is a huge place, so it can get a lot of people. And if you compare to, say, Alexander the Great's army, he's only got about 40-odd thousand at best. So he's got considerably less. And that's one of the things we see in the Hellenistic period is armies getting bigger. And a lot of people have criticised the Hellenistic generals for just relying on the size of their army. And I don't think that's fair. I mean, warfare changes, but yeah, they're relatively big it's they're not always that big but they're quite substantial a lot of the time
0: and so many of us are familiar with the terms such as chariot cities so on and so forth of these great kings in the ancient near east and my question is when it comes to like the cavalry of the seleucid empire did they have cities throughout that basically hosted these large numbers of mounted troops
1: again this is a question that i've spent a lot of time thinking about The first thing to clarify is chariots in the Near East are an Assyrian thing, so there are several hundred years before our period. Even the Achaemenid Persians aren't really using chariots. There are scythe chariots, as I've mentioned, but no major chariot armies at this period. Chariots tend to be limited or ceremonial at this time. As for the horses, this again, it depends on your type of soldier. So your guard we know was kept at Apameo when it's not being sent elsewhere. And we know that there were some studs there. So I think Strabo tells us that there were a royal stud of 3, 000, 3, is it 30,000 mares and 3,000 stallions. And we know that the guard is 2,000 strong, so they're going to have their horses there as well. As for the others, as I said, it depends. So anyone who's a military settler and serves in the cavalry is going to have their horse probably with them and garrisons are going to have cavalry elsewhere after that it becomes a lot harder to tell there are some places we can tell that were home to studs of horses where they would breed horses so media is the most notable one but there was places throughout the empire but evidence for that becomes a lot more scarce because a lot of our sources just don't care about that sort of stuff
0: let's talk boot camp did they rely on heavy training for these riders, and do we know anything about their training exercises and etc. that they would have had to have went through on, let's say, a regular basis?
1: So this is a question I would absolutely love to know the real answer to. It's a question that always comes up, and it's unfortunately one we really don't know very much about at all. So, as I said, we know the guard are in Apamea and. Strabo also tells us that there are instructors who are paid to teach the arts of war and heavy-armed fighting and that there are cult breakers there. So that's reasonable to assume that the guard, at least, are getting some training and some kind of formalised, centralised training. And to be honest, if you want a decent guard, you're going to want them to be able to fight. I would also argue that the military settlers will have some kind of training as well, though we really don't know what that consisted of and how formalised that was. And how far that extends to your other units, again, it's something we really don't know. As I said, it might have been for some of the less formalised contingents that just having a horse makes you eligible, that you can ride a horse, great, here's a sword. After that, it becomes a little more complicated. So we do have some comparative evidence. So if you were interested in the classical period, Xenophon has loads of really, really useful stuff about how to train cavalry in Athens and this is really really useful he's like the only guy who's actually interested in this sort of stuff and we hear a little bit in the Roman period so we know a bit about how the Romans work as well. We don't really know what kind of training the Seleucids would have and it is a real shame. We do know that when we get to Cataphracts so this is the very heavily armoured cavalry they would have needed a lot of training that you need training just of how to sit on the horse in all the armor and your horse has got armor on. It requires you to sit in a different way and then if you want your cavalry to work together they're going to need training so that they work together. We do know that the Seleucids can perform complicated cavalry maneuvers so they must have had some level of training just so that they act as a cohesive whole but again we don't know anything specific. I've mentioned the Tarentines so these are a very specialized group of fighters. Arian and Aelianus Tacticus tell us that they specialised in skirmish fighting from a distance, so throwing a javelin and then closing in with their second javelin for close combat and that implies that after they've thrown the first javelin they're able to move the second one from one hand to the other whilst charging and that implies a great deal of training. But beyond that we really don't know so I'd love to answer that question but we don't really know.
0: And so you mentioned the eventual arrival of the catapracts and these are like, oh my God, the mounted tanks of the ancient Near East. My question is, before we dive into them, when it comes to the cavalry before them, do we know what kind of armor they would have been wearing?
1: We know the guard is going to be heavily armored. I mean, these are units that have stemmed from the Macedonian army and Alexander's main companions are heavily armored cavalry and capable of, you know, shock action and up for your close range fighting. So we know the guard are going to have similar sorts of armor. And as I said, when we get the cataphracts, they're very heavily armored. Like you've got loads of armor on, your horse has got loads of armor on, you are going to make a really big punch into your enemy. So we know those have lots of armor and the armor is very expensive. So it, I mean, usually the people who are cavalrymen tend to be wealthy anyway because just having a horse is a lot. Once you add armour on top of it you're going to need have even more money. It's debatable how far the Seleucids are going to want to pay for some of this or whether you have to pay for it and the Seleucid King provides it but you're expected to buy it. We really don't know about that. When we move to lighter cavalry so the missile cavalry people who use bows and arrows and javelins they're obviously going to want lighter armor because they rely on their speed and maneuverability. And they're not getting up close and personal with the other enemy cavalry and the other enemy infantry. So they don't need as much protection.
0: And when it comes to the types of mounted troops in the Seleucid military during this time, my question would be, do we tend to see horses more or camels?
1: So camels are very interesting. I mean, we are talking about an eastern empire so camels are quite a natural thing to think about and they're certainly going to be there in the baggage train because they're very good at traversing different terrain and they're very good at carrying things they don't need as much water horses need a lot of water when we come to the actual battlefield though the camels only appear on the battlefield in one occasion so at the battle of magnesia we know that antiochus iii has a contingent of arabian camel archers. We don't know anything else about them. We know they're on the left wing of the battle, but the left wing of the Seleucid line collapses very, very quickly at the beginning of the battle. The chariots just cause absolute chaos there. So we don't hear anything else about them. And I'm of the opinion that Antiochus has camels because when he told the Arabians to arrive, they arrived on camels. Not that he one day sat up and thought, you know what we need? Camels. So I don't think he went and sought them out himself. So on the whole, we are seeing horses. And again, as I've said, they're heirs to the Macedonian tradition, which is a very strong cavalry tradition. They're heirs to the Achaemenid, Persian tradition, and they're a very strong cavalry power as well. And there are many areas in the Seleucid Empire that are really good at raising horses. They have lots of different types of horses. So they've got the really bulky Naseyan horse, which is good for your heavy cavalry. You've got this lighter Turanian horse, maybe some step horses that are really good at endurance. So there's no reason why they wouldn't want to use horses. They've got really, really good horses in a much better range than most of their adversaries.
0: And our next question, and a lot of subscribers are really curious. When it comes to the fighting and the riding, and especially when you are in the middle of combat, how on earth were they able to stay on their horses? Do we know anything about possibility of their saddle types or possibly stirrups
1: i'm not as well up on saddle types because again it depends on the culture and the different styles of horses stirrups however do not exist in this period they haven't been invented yet so there are no stirrups you have to stay on by the strength of your legs now obviously that is possible and with training and with use to riding that way you can do it it does mean though if you have a spear and you're charging at say an infantryman and you decide to stab him you're going to have to let go of that spear because if you don't you're gonna go flying off your own horse so it is going to change the way you fight but you'll be totally used to that in the ancient world because everybody fights that way so you're not at any more a disadvantage than say your opponents and that's why when it comes to cataphract cavalry you're in all that bulky armor you're going to have to adjust how you sit and we have I think some later Roman sources saying it takes a bit of training and a bit of use getting used to how you sit the horse in all the armor and not fall off it. So yeah, I hope that answers the question.
0: (laughs) So basically what you're telling us is it's never a good idea to skip leg day at the ancient gym. No,
1: definitely not.
0: (laughs) And so when it comes to weapons and I know it's going to vary according to where they may be from, so on and so forth. So let's say on a typical day, Depending on who's there, what kind of weapons would we expect to see them using?
1: Yeah, so as you said, it's going to change with who you are and what type of cavalry you are. So for the heavier cavalry, you're going to have like a long spear. And because you're going to want to skewer your opponents, you, you are the shock troops. You're going to want to really punch through. And you're probably, as I said, you're going to have to let go if you stab somebody. So you're probably going to have a sword as well. And then we move out to javelins, so you can throw those and then bows and arrows and things. So it really depends on the type of cavalry and what you want your cavalry to do. So when we move into missile troops, there's lots of different things you could have. And there are some really interesting Achaemenid parallels. I think Herodotus has one where, oh, these people have lassos. We never hear of them in battle, but that's quite cool that they've got lassos and like Ancient cowboys (laughs) on the battlefield, that'd be quite fun. But on the whole, we're talking spears, javelins, swords, bows and arrows, that sort of thing, usually.
0: When it comes to armor, and again, I know this will vary according to where they may be from, um, do we know if they used shields that much while riding on their horses?
1: Yeah, so again, this is something that does vary. I haven't looked too much into this. I do think they do have, or some types certainly have shields. Um, Again, it's hit and miss what type of cavalry you are and how big that shield is. So it's not something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. But yeah, there will have been cavalry shields, but it's hit and miss as to who has them, who doesn't, who needs them, who doesn't.
0: And before I move on to discussing how they were used, so on and so forth, We've talked a little bit about armor, we've talked a little bit about weapons, and one question, and I should have actually put this in, do we know, like, if we look at the heavily armored catapracts, for example, do we know how much that armor weighed?
1: I'm not sure. We know what it looks like, but I don't think we have any full pieces of armor. We can possibly make comparisons, say, with Roman armor, because the cataphracts are a hugely successful type of cavalry. They stem from Parthia and Antiochus sort of gets the idea and goes, oh, those are really cool. We're going to have some of those. And he develops them. And then the Romans pick it up, the Parthians continue it. So these are a type of troop that continues right the way through. So I don't really know how much it would weigh. And it's debatable whether it's going to be plate armor on you or whether you're going to use scale armor and your horse is going to have scale armor. So that's a little bit more flexible than, say, full plate armor. And that's why I said you need really big, bulky, strong horses that can carry that armor. They don't have to necessarily be really tall, but they do have to be bulky and able to carry that. And the Nisean horse in particular is exceptional for this type of warfare.
0: And so let's say I'm an enemy soldier, I'm on the ground, I can hear it coming, and now I'm officially getting a little nervous. What kind of tactics can we expect from them to try to take me out?
1: Cavalry are very interesting. Um, arm on the battlefield because they're very flexible. You can do a lot of different things with cavalry and the most standard p- position to put cavalry on the battlefield is the flanks because they need a lot of space to move and when you start to develop really heavy phalanx-based infantry that doesn't move very well. It likes to be in flat ground in one space It is exceptional for frontal attacks. You know, it's got all those spears pointing out at the front, but it's very vulnerable in its sides because it doesn't have any weapons there and it's not very good at turning round. So you would have your cavalry there to protect the sides. And that means that if you're against the phalanx, you're going to want to get rid of its cavalry so that you can take it in the flank. And so that's why we tend to see cavalry engage first, cavalry tend to attack first because they're a lot faster and if you've got a phalanx, winning against the enemy's phalanx is not going to guarantee you victory if the enemy still has cavalry. There are a few occasions, there is one notable occasion when the Seleucid um, cavalry attack last, the infantry attack first, that's done for a very specific purpose to lure the enemy away from the battlefield and it is hugely successful but that's rather unusual, that tends not to happen. As for the different tactics, it depends on the stage of the battle and what your grand tactical plan is, and we never really know what the commander's grand tactical plan is, we sort of have to guess. So the most standard one is a charge and pursuit, to charge at your enemy and to pursue them. Now this is very typical if the enemy is already fleeing, you can run them down with your horses and kill them, and we see that at the Seleucid Battle at Toporia, which is about 208 BC. And that's quite um, successful. And you've got to remember, if you're an infantryman and you have a horse coming at you, that is scary. It's a human, basic human psychology to fear something bigger than you. And even if you know the horse isn't going to stand on you, it's going to do its best not to stand on you, it's still scary. And you've got this guy on the top who wants to kill you. And There's some comparative evidence from the Napoleonic period where a Napoleonic cavalry commander says that you can see even veteran soldiers get a bit nervous when the cavalry is approaching them. That even if they know they'll be fine if they just stand in their formation, they get a little bit nervous. And this is where I think it gets really interesting when you then compare it with elephants who are even bigger and even more scarier. But as I said, we will leave the elephants to aside for a moment. So you have that psychological dimension you, and that is such an important element of the battlefield. If you can scare your opponent and so much of this is about showing off and scaring your opponent, that's half your battle won like if the opponent does not want to stay there anymore. But assuming that your opponent does want to stay there, assuming that you're going to attack the cavalry first and not the infantry, you might charge them and break them and then pursue them off the field. The Seleucids do do that on two occasions, so at the Battle of Raphia in 217 and at Magnesia in 190. It goes disastrously wrong because Antiochus, who's the king, he's commanding the cavalry, he's victorious, he pursues the enemy off the field and forgets about his infantry who really need his help. And this goes very, very wrong. By the time he realises the battle's over, he's lost. What is very interesting is you would think he would have learnt. After it goes very wrong at Raphia, you would think at Magnesia in 190 BC, he'd learned not to do that. Particularly because at the Battle of Parnon, which is sort of in the middle of these two, it's at 200 BC, his son who is commanding the cataphracts, charges the opposing cavalry, defeats them and turns into the infantry like he should do and it's very successful. So you would think his father would have listened to that, you know, and go, that's how you do it, but he doesn't. So that's one tactic you can use. It can be successful, I mean, Alexander manages to pull it off all the time and is very successful. It can go horribly, horribly wrong if you don't pay attention. Other things you can do is sort of the flip of that, the sham retreat, where you pretend to retreat from your uh, from the enemy's advance and draw them away from the battlefield. And this is most spectacularly seen at Ipsus. So the Seleucid cavalry pretend to fall back from Demetrius' attack, And then Seleucus moves the elephants across the pass so Demetrius can't get back and he can then surround the enemy's infantry. So that's the flip side of that. You can, instead of charging and pursuing them, you can make them come to you. And that's, again, what we see at Alasa where the cavalry don't attack first. They try and draw the other enemy cavalry away from the battlefield. Other standard things are harassment of the cavalry. This is where your missile cavalry come in very, very hard handy, you can fire missiles and arrows at either the enemy cavalry or the enemy infantry. So if you've got heavy infantry, it relies on its compact formation. And the more missiles you can throw at it, the more you can disrupt its formation, the easier it is to get a gap where your heavy cavalry can then charge through it. Because you are not going to get your heavy cavalry charging the spear wall head on, that's a good way to skewer your horses. So you're going to want to wait until you can get a gap and then charge right the way through it. And again, Ipsus is a very good example of that, where Seleucus rides round the exposed infantry of his enemy and just keeps them in threat of a charge and keeps them in threat of this bombardment of arrows. And that is enough to persuade a lot of those soldiers to just defect to the Seleucids and go, no, we're not doing this, this is scary. So that's another way you can do it. And it can be very, very useful as well. There are other things you can do in different places, you can put your cavalry on the battlefield for different effects, so as I said the flank is usually the standard place and the Seleucids even here tend to experiment, so at Raffia on the right wing we are told there are 4,000 cavalry, 2,000 that are normal and then another 2,000 that are at an angle with them. So we have an example here of an oblique formation where the flank is refused and This helps create a greater offensive potential because now you can attack the enemy on two sides and you also make it harder for them to outflank you because there is no flank. We're not really sure which way the angle's pointing, whether the angle's forward or backwards, because it doesn't really say, but it does mirror Alexander's formations at the Battle of Galgamela in 331 BC. So we think it might be forwards. So that's a different thing you can do. We also know the Seleucid's at Magnesia, have their cavalry near the centre. And this is really, really odd. So, on the left wing, everything is normal. Cavalry is on the wing. On the right wing, you have the phalanx. Then you have the Agama and the Cataphract, so very heavily armed cavalry. And then there's another contingent of the Argaraspides who are the guard. So, they're also very heavily armoured infantry. So, it's very, very odd to have the cavalry in the middle of those two. And... That has confused scholars for quite a while, and we think it's to do with the way the Roman line is opposite them, That I would suggest that these cavalry are acting as a hinge between the two phalanxes so that they can envelope the um, Romans after they've driven a wedge with the cavalry in the Roman line. Again, as I said, this doesn't happen. Antiochus gets carried away and charges off down the away from the battlefield chasing the people he's um, routed and it doesn't happen that way but that's what we think might be happening. There are also times when the cavalry are placed like in reserve so in the battle against Molon this is 220 BC and it's a very interesting battle because it's a Seleucid army versus another Seleucid army. Here Antiochus III Third tells some of his cavalry and his infantry to stay in reserve and then once they have the battle has started to circle round and attack and that is a really interesting thing that's one of the few instances we get of a true offensive reserve. Of course there are times when the cavalry are put in the back because the terrain isn't very good so the battle of Thermopylae in 191 BC is a very good example of that but there are a lot of different things you can do with the cavalry and they're still very, very useful on the battlefield. And so I get a little bit irritated when scholars say, oh, the cavalry are declining in the Hellenistic period. They're not as good as they were under Alexander. They're not as decisive as they were. And I'm like, yeah, that's because the Hellenistic period is very different. Alexander's opponents are not the same as the Hellenistic opponents. The asymmetry that was so important for Alexander is lost in the Hellenistic period. So what that means is that Hellenistic commanders have basically the same troops with the same tactical mindsets. So you can't expect the cavalry to be able to do the same things that they could do under Alexander. It doesn't mean they can't, it just means the nature of battle has changed.
0: We've covered primary sources, we've covered tactics, we've covered what they may have worn, what weapons they may have fought with. We've also talked about the battles that they were crucial in, different things that they did, some successes, some failures, and so my next question is, is more of a modern one, And that is, has archaeology told us anything about these mounted troops?
1: Yeah. so archaeology is another very important resource. Of course, our ancient sources, our literary sources, can tell us how a battle happened, can tell us what was going on in that battle, and they are very, very important. But we shouldn't dismiss the material side of it either. As to how much you can tell us, it really depends on the question you want to answer. So... As we mentioned briefly, there are some finds of cataphract armour, or at least there are reliefs that show what cataphract armour looked like. So there's a relief from a temple to Athena that was in Pergamum. There's also some finds from Icarnum and a little Syrian um, figurine, which I think is in the Louvre now. When we move, say, to elephants, there is a wonderful statuette from Marina of an elephant crushing a Galatian soldier, so that's quite fun. Well, not fun but quite interesting. There's also coins, so lots of numismatic evidence. We don't tend to see cavalry on that as much, but we do see different types of horses. The horned horse was a lucid royal symbol on coins, so we see it quite a lot. Again, we see elephants quite a lot on coins. There's also the epigraphy and the epigraphic and iconographic evidence that I've mentioned that can tell us that certain units existed, or it can tell us about, say, Seleucid citizenship, can tell us about what the status of these particular men were. There's some evidence for military settlements, or at least settlements that may have been military. If you're wanting evidence for, well, where did they keep their horses? Do we have any horse stables, things? That's when the archaeology starts to fall apart, but there isn't as much there. So, depends what kind of question you're wanting to answer with the archaeology. And we do need to supplement it with all our other sources to try and build up this picture. I mean, trying to study the Hellenistic world is always going to be one of those, what sources do we have? How do I compensate for the gaps in my sources?
0: When it comes to the end of the Seleucid Empire and the new ones come in, how does the cavalry of what was the Seleucid Empire change?
1: This is a question I've not as sure about because my research stopped at 160 BC partly because once we get past that period the evidence for actual engagements begets very very sparse it's very hard to tell what's going on so we might know that certain battles happen there's a Babylonian astronomical diary that tells us that of a particular battle and that the elephants are there which is quite interesting because a lot of people say oh there's no elephants after the Romans slaughter the herd at Apamea it's like well this says that there are this is 150 BC this is much later there must have been elephants so I don't know as much here because the evidence gets a bit more fragmentary it's harder to tell what's going on it's not something I've spent as much time looking at and obviously once Parthia the Parthians invade And once they capture Media, a lot of the Seleucid cavalry can't get, they can't get their horses where they used to get it. Media was one of the best places to get their horses. It's where they got their Nasaeans, the big bulky horses from. So that's going to be a real blow to Seleucid cavalry. And we know it's the Parthians that take over this area. The Romans get some of it in their province of Syria. The Parthians take over. So we then have to look at Parthian cavalry and how that changes. So that is a real turning point, I think, in the Seleucid Empire. That invasion of the Parthians and the conquest of Media and the surrounding areas.
0: And that's a really good point, is the arrival of Parthia as a new empire. It's going to come with its own unique style of fighting as well. And they do implement that very famous retreat to try to draw your enemy out, which is going to result, I think it's the, uh, is, isn't it the Battle of Karhe?
1: I know they're, they're very good at Um, circling the Romans and firing at them because they're very good at the Parthian shot, hence the name, so they've got really good light cavalry that's good at missile warfare but they also have the cataphracts so though again we're seeing a very flexible cavalry force and the Parthians have very fertile areas so they can get lots of good horses and once they get hold of the rest of the Seleucid Empire a lot of really good places. The Bactrians are another people who have really good cavalry, and they're also an area that very quickly decide we're not being part of the Seleucid Empire. Bye. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Decided they will see themselves out.
1: I mean, it does depend on how strong the king is at any one time. So Antiochus marches in there and says, "Well, give me your elephants," and they do have to give, after he's defeated them, and they do give him his elephants. So some people have suggested that maybe Parthia and maybe Bactria might send troops, depending on their relations with the Seleucids at any particular time. But other times, nope, we're our own kingdom, we're doing our own thing, so you can just go away, we're not interested.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us here today at the Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages. Dr. Gerard has done a great job of taking us through a topic that I knew very little about, and that is the cavalry of the Seleucid Empire. We learned a variety of things from an archeological perspective to primary sources and beyond. And honestly, I'm really excited. I can't wait to have you on again. And once again, Dr. Gerard, thank you so much for coming on here today.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: (laughs) And to my subscribers, check out the links in the video description below. It's going to take you to places like her academia page where you can learn more, really take advantage of all the great things she has to offer when it comes to better understanding the subjects that we all love. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all so much and have a wonderful night.